forward to diving into the confession with you, considering more about the doctrine of Scripture. We've got a lot to cover, so would you pray with me, and we'll get started. Father, I thank you for the time that we get together tonight. Help us to think well according to your word as summarized in the confession about your word, about what it is and what it's for, about what it does and what we're to do with it. Father, would you help this not to simply be an academic or an intellectual exercise, but would you drive it into our hearts, through our minds, such that it would so affect our hands and our feet that we would grow in holiness, even as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, that it would lead us to glorify you and to enjoy you more. We ask that you would do all of this by the power of your Spirit, for the sake of the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard, Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the earth. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuits to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults, and keep me back, or keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, and then I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We see just in this one psalm, God revealing himself. He is a God who speaks, and he speaks to make himself known in more than one way. He speaks through what he has made. He speaks through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he speaks through his word. But what is his word? Why is it necessary? What's its identity? What kind of attributes does it have? What's its nature? Those are the things that we're going to discuss. And that's the content of the first article of the Second London Confession. Which, with few exceptions, is almost identical to the Westminster Confession. If you're at home, online, and listening... Then you can follow along with the sheets that I just sent out. The rest of you who are here with us, you should have grabbed one of those on the way in. That will help you to follow along as we go. We're going to be talking about the doctrine of Scripture. 
Psalm 19 was an appropriate jumping off point. Each one of you should have a copy of your confession with you. If you don't, you can grab one over on the table right over there to follow along. That will be in modernized English. I'm going to be using old, crusty English. And so hang with me the best that you can, okay? I just want to think about a few things in an introductory way that like every other Puritan confession, the second line of confession begins with a principium cognoscendi, or, or rather the principle of knowing. It's an epistemology of how we know things. And so, chapter one on the Scriptures is giving us essentially a foundational epistemological basis for all Christian theology. How can we know what we know in such a way to formulate it in a way that is faithful to the one who reveals it. Well, the doctrine of Scripture is necessary for that. It provides the building block for every other doctrine that follows, which is really just to say that all true doctrine comes from God's Word. The ten paragraphs that we're going to consider tonight give a concise and yet full definition of what divine revelation is, what it is, where it comes from, and what it's for. In it, the Scriptures are going to be defined and identified. Its attributes are going to be laid out. And this much is going to be evident in the general structure of the chapter. You can look at that there. There's four main sections to these ten paragraphs. We're going to see in paragraph one the necessity of Scripture. That's going to be followed in paragraphs two and three by the identity of Scripture. Then beginning in paragraph four all the way through the seventh paragraph, it's going to list off a handful of attributes of Scripture. And then finally, in the last three paragraphs, paragraphs 8 through 10, we have the use of Scripture. Why is it necessary? How do we know what it is? What is it? What is its nature? And what is it to be used for? It's going to be the subject matter of, of this article. And so, if you have your copy of the Confession, follow along with me. I want to start by reading paragraph 1. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal Himself and to declare that His will unto His church." And afterward, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh, and the malice of Satan, and of the world, to commit the whole, to same holy underwriting which make the holy scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people being now ceased. This is going to be a foundational paragraph for a foundational article. And so, let's consider it together. First of all, notice that summary statement in that first sentence. It is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. That first line is not in Westminster, and it is not in Savoy. The Baptists added it. Why? Well, of the few explanations that are given, the suggestions that are offered, the most likely reason is that the Baptists are distinguishing themselves from the Quakers of the day. The Quakers, related to 
modern-day Pentecostals, much of their doctrine, deny the authoritative place of the Scriptures and instead emphasize the work of the Spirit. And so, according to their inner light doctrine, that's what it was called, their inner light doctrine, Quakers would sit together until someone received revelation from God and was moved by the Holy Spirit to speak. But Baptists rightly believed that the Christian faith wasn't based on a succession of novels, supernatural experiences. Christianity is a revealed religion that is inscripturated. And that's what we're going to consider in this opening paragraph. Notice a few things, though, about this opening line. First of all, it says that Scripture is a rule. You see that word right there in the middle of the sentence? It's a rule. It's a standard. In the way that we might think about a ruler being a standard for measurement, the Scriptures are a rule. It is a standard by which all other things related to God and the gospel are to be measured. It is a rule. First and foremost. And then it tells us what kind of rule it is by four consecutive modifiers. You see them there? It is the only, sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge. First, you notice that it is the only rule. There are none others that function like a rule in the way that the scriptures do. It is the only rule. And this modifier of only is going to go on to modify the other modifiers. That it is not only the only rule, it is the only sufficient rule, it is the only certain rule, and it is the only infallible rule. When we say it's the only sufficient rule, what we mean is that in light of other kinds of revelation, which we're going to consider here in just a minute, natural revelation or, or the light of nature... Those are insufficient for saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Something more is needed. God has to speak. And insofar as God's Word has been inscripturated, the Holy Scriptures are then the only sufficient rule. But secondly, it's the only certain rule, or it's the only sure rule. It's interesting in chapter 2, which we'll begin to look at here in a couple of weeks, concerning the doctrine of God, God's knowledge is described in the same way. It is certain. Well, here we see God's Word is described in the same way that God's knowledge is described. It's described as certain. It is the only certain rule. In other words, Scripture is a faithful record of everything that God intends to reveal for all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. But thirdly and finally, it is the only infallible rule. Dr. James Renahan notes that the first known use of the word infallible in a confession is right here in the Second London Confession of Faith. No other confessions prior to the Second London contain the word infallible. What does it mean? We're familiar as evangelicals with the name, with the, with the word inerrancy. It's a popular popular word in many of the culture wars and the doctrine wars among evangelical Christians against theological liberals over the course of the last 30 or 40 years, especially in the wake of the Chicago Statement and inerrancy. And whereas inerrancy says that the Bible does not err, infallibility asserts that Scripture cannot 
error. In other words, infallibility is a stronger term than inerrancy. It speaks to the trustworthiness of Scripture. That if Scripture is God's word and God is trustworthy, that is to say, God cannot lie as men lie, then Scripture is equally trustworthy. It is not merely that the Bible does not err, it's that in its very nature as God's word, it cannot err. It is impossible to err. Finally, notice that Scripture is the only sufficient, the only certain, and the only infallible rule for what? What specifically do we see in that opening sentence? Not all possible knowledge, not everything that could possibly be known in all of the world and in all of history, not even a general knowledge of God. But notice it's a specific knowledge into that first sentence. It's the knowledge of all, or it's all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. The knowledge of God and creation is insufficient for knowing these things. So, we'll see in a moment you can go outside You can consider the creation, its beauty and its order, and you can reason your way to the notion from God's revelation in Scripture or in creation that there is such a person as God and that He must be mighty and that He must be creative. But what you cannot know from what God has created is God as Holy Trinity and how this triune God would save sinners through the person and the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, if you want to know saving knowledge and if you want to have saving faith and if you want to walk in obedience to God according to His will, we don't go to look at trees and clouds and sun and moon. We go to the Scriptures. It is the only rule for these things. There is no other. There's no other place to find it, not inside of ourselves, not outside of ourselves. It is in Scripture alone. Therefore, it's necessary. It is necessary for God to speak and for all people everywhere to know what He has said. And that's what the rest of the first paragraph is concerned with. We're going to see here in the first paragraph that there's really two kinds of revelation. There is general revelation or natural revelation, revelation of God and what has been created. Can you see that there? The light of nature, the works of creation and His providence manifest the goodness and the wisdom and the power of God so as to leave men inexcusable. The confession tells us that God has spoken in various ways, here in the light of nature or even in His works of creation and providence. As we just read in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. God's creation preaches a silent sermon about God to everyone on whom the sun rises and falls. Later on in Romans, in his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 picks up on that same theme from Psalm 19. And in it, he writes about how the knowledge of God is plain to all men everywhere because of what God has created. Namely, he says, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature. That all men everywhere can know these things about God from what God has created, though man in his sin suppresses the knowledge of God, the apostle says. So, God's creation and human reason, which is a 
part of God's creation, is sufficient to reveal the knowledge of a creator. You can reason yourself to the idea of such a person as God based on what he has created, but this true revelation in creation is insufficient. It is sufficient enough to condemn all men in their knowledge of God, but it is insufficient to save a sinner. That's why the confession tells us they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will, which is necessary unto salvation. So what are they sufficient for? God's creation and the light of nature is sufficient to reveal that there is such a person as God and to hold all men everywhere accountable to that knowledge for rejecting Him. What is it insufficient for? It is insufficient to tell sinners who suppress the knowledge of God how they can be saved by this very same God. For that, God needs to speak. That's why, or that's the goal of special revelation. We see that there. See that yet? Yet, they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will, which is necessary unto salvation. Now, the question becomes, well, then where do we find that knowledge of God and His will, which is necessary unto salvation? Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times in diverse manners to reveal Himself and declare His will unto His church, that God has spoken to make His will and His salvation known. Since light of nature and the works of creation and providence are insufficient to reveal the knowledge of God and the gospel, it pleased the Lord to reveal Himself. And so here in paragraph 1, the confession moves from natural revelation to special revelation. And here you may notice that the language sounds familiar. The, the confession is leaning heavily on Hebrews chapter 1. You look at Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, it's using the exact same language. Long ago, the writer says, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Notice that those first couple of verses are centered on God speaking. And we've seen now that it was necessary for God to speak because what He created is insufficient to reveal His will unto salvation. So, God has to speak. And how did He do it? Well, through, the, through our fathers, the prophets, He's spoken lots of different times, and He's spoken lots of different ways. If you just do a survey of the Old Testament, you'll find all kinds of ways that God spoke, didn't He? In theophonic visions, that is, a, that is uh, appearances of the glory of God, or in a burning bush, in a donkey, from thunder and lightning, from Sinai, and all these various ways, and at different times, God spoke. But we see that those many times and those many ways have now ceased because He has spoken chiefly and ultimately in His Son, Jesus Christ, such that He no longer speaks in many ways. He has spoken now finally in one way, that is, through the gospel of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so here the confession is just lifting Scripture from Hebrews chapter 1 to establish its point. Because personal revelation is subject to being distorted in time, that is, of God speaking directly to individuals, and then those individuals speaking for God to others, because 
that revelation is prone to corruption in time, God chose in His wisdom to commit His Word wholly to writing, such that even the Scriptures themselves, the Apostle Paul writes, 2 Timothy 3.16, are breathed out by God. In other words, God inscripturated the various ways that He spoke at many times in the way that He spoke ultimately in His Son, Jesus. He put it all in the Scriptures. Why? Well, we see two reasons at the end of paragraph one. The first reason is to preserve and to propagate the truth. Because man in his sin is prone to corrupt the truth about God, God has, in the power of the Holy Spirit, inscripturated His truth so that His truth might be preserved across the ages and so that it might be propagated or spread to all men everywhere. Now, that's going to be an important foundational point when we get to the latter part of the article, specifically dealing with translation work. How exactly, then, do these scriptures, God's truth inscripturated, get to all people everywhere? Well, that's going to be the subject of paragraph 8. And so, keep that on the shelf. We're going to pull it back down a little bit later. So, it's to preserve and to propagate the truth first and foremost, but notice, secondly, it is to establish the church. In other words, the church does not establish the Scriptures contrary to the Roman church's assertions. The Scriptures establish the church, and it is for the comfort of the church. Against what? Against the corruption of the flesh, the malice of Satan and of the world. The Scriptures are the means whereby God comforts His church and helps them to persevere in holiness by His grace until He calls them home or He comes again. The Scriptures are the very means whereby He helps us to persevere, to overcome sin, to resist the devil, to glorify and enjoy God in this life as He's revealed Himself in His Word. Now, you notice that ultimately, if it is the only rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience, then it only stands to reason then that these former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people have now ceased, which is to say that God, having revealed Himself at various times and in various ways to our fathers by the prophets, and has now finally and fully spoken to us by His Son in the gospel, there is no more revelation that is needed. We have everything that we need to know or to have all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience in the Lord Jesus Christ. None more is needed. As such, God does not speak in various ways as He did before anymore. He has spoken finally and ultimately in His Son, and that revelation has been inscripturated to be given to all people everywhere. Now, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here. Maybe we can do so in Q&A a little bit later, but we're not going to spend a whole lot of time getting into whether or not all of the gifts are continuing. But what it is saying is that contrary to the Quakers that we mentioned earlier and their inner light doctrine, we're not sitting around waiting for God to reveal more knowledge than He's already given us in the Scriptures. 
That's the point of paragraph one. It's going to be the foundation for the sufficiency of the scriptures, which we're going to get to at paragraph five. That in the Bible, God has given us everything that we need to know to believe all that we need to believe and to do all that he would have us do. And we don't need anything more. His former ways of speaking have ceased. He now speaks to us by his inscripturated word. That is why the scriptures are necessary. Without them, we cannot know God or his will for salvation. But then beginning in paragraph 2 and in paragraph 3, we move from the necessity of Scripture to the identity of the Scriptures. We just saw that they were necessary, but what are they? We see at the beginning of the second paragraph that they are the Word of God written. Read along with me. Paragraph 2. Under the name of Holy Scripture, or the Word of God written are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testament, which are listed here, and you'll, they'll number 66, just as you find in your own Protestant Bible. All of which, end of paragraph 2, are given by the inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. The books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon or rule of the Scripture. And therefore are of no authority to the church, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. So they are, as we've seen here, the Word of God written, contained in all the books of the Old and New Testaments as listed here. In paragraph 2, they are given by the inspiration of God that they are divinely spirated, they're breathed out. They're theonoustos. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. It is His Word. And only those things which ultimately stand up to the inspiration and prove themselves to be inspired of God, very God, which is beyond getting into discussion of canonicity is going to be beyond the scope of our time today. But it's to say that these 66 books are inspired by God, written by authors inspired by the Holy Spirit to write down what God revealed to them or spoke to them, or to write down real redemptive history as they observed it in their own day and age. All of it is the very Word of God and is to be included in the Scriptures. It is inscripturated, God's Word inscripturated, the Word of God written. But in paragraph 3, there are some to be excluded. That contrary to the Roman church, the Protestant Reformed tradition affirms only 66 inspired books and rejects the Apocrypha as Scripture. Their history, it's affirmed here, but they're not inspired history. They may be profitable for study, just like any other human writings, but they're not spiritual in nature. That is, they are not inspired and so, what is to be included? Here's the identity of the Scriptures. What is to be excluded? These are not God's Word inscripturated. And so, we affirm, according to the confession, it is 66 books inspired by God that we might have full saving knowledge of God and His will. So, we've seen now the necessity of the Scriptures, and we've seen the identity of the Scriptures, but now in 
Paragraphs four through seven, we're going to consider the attributes of the Scriptures. Once the confession establishes these previous paragraphs, it moves on. There's a logic to the article. And these paragraphs are going to consider three specific attributes. In paragraphs four and five, it's going to consider the sufficiency or the authority of Scripture, rather. Then in paragraph six, it's going to consider the sufficiency of Scripture. Then finally, in paragraph seven, it'll consider the, purpose, the perspicuity of Scripture, the perspiration of Scripture, the perspicuity of Scripture, or the clarity of Scripture. And each one of these, in fact, no, we won't go into that. Each one of these is going to help us understand what it is. What is the nature of God's Word? Well, let's consider the first attribute, paragraphs 4 and 5, concerned with the authority of the Scriptures. The authority of the Holy Scriptures, for which it ought to be believed, depends not on the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the Word of God. And we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church of God to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures and the heavenliness of the matter and the efficacy of the doctrine and the majesty of the style and the consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God. The full discovery of it makes of, it makes of the only way of man's salvation and many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof. There are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the Word of God, and yet notwithstanding, our full persuasion, our full assurance of the infallible truth and of the divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. We're going to see two things in paragraph four. We see authorship. And in paragraph 5, we're going to consider authentication, authorship and authentication. Why, is, why are the Scriptures authoritative? First of all, paragraph 4, because of who the author is. That even though there are dozens of human authors across millennia, the Bible ultimately has but one author. God is His author. They're breathed out by God, and God is truth. Now, I want you to note something because this paragraph is going to anticipate everything chapter 2 says about God. That in the same way that God is not just a bigger and better version of us, but is in an altogether different category, infinite, immutable. Whereas we are finite and changing, God is in an altogether different category, so it is with His Word. That the Scriptures are not just the best of human literature, as if God were just the very best or the ideal of the very best of humanity. The Scriptures are an altogether different category. They're ontologically different. That is different in their very being, in their essence, in their nature, from every other human writing, and it's because God is its author. So that means that when we connect the Word of God to the person of God, we ultimately connect the authority of God's Word to God's authority over our lives. What's true of God is true of the Scriptures. And so far as God is faithful, the Scriptures are faithful. And so far as God is true, see what the Confession says, who is truth itself, 
The scriptures are true. So what we understand to be true about the scriptures ultimately is rooted in what is true about its author, which is what we're going to consider in chapter 2 here in a couple of weeks. So God is the author. I also want you to keep in mind how the authorship of God is going to help us better understand what the confession is going to say later on in paragraph 9 about interpreting scripture and of every passage having one meaning. So put that on the shelf for now, because the idea of God being the author of Scripture is going to be important for understanding why we interpret Scripture with Scripture. So put that on the shelf. We'll pull it back down here in just a little bit. But secondly, we want to consider in paragraph 5 its authentication. If we considered its authority in paragraph 4, now we consider its authentication. How does the authority of the Scriptures, how is it authenticated? In the beginning, it acknowledges certain forms and evidences, and this evidence certainly has its place, doesn't it? That we are persuaded that this must be the Word of God by a whole mountain of evidence. And so, I remember when I was a young evangelical Christian, the, the book that you carried everywhere with you alongside your Bible was Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And the vast majority of that book was taken up with proving by evidence, evidences many of which are articulated here in this paragraph, why the Scriptures are in fact the Word of God. Look at all this evidence. How could we deny in the face of all of this evidence that the Scriptures are in fact the Word of God? Well, as helpful as those may be, at the end of the day, one who is dead in their sin and trespasses, one who is unresponsive to the truth of God because they're born in iniquity and brought, are brought forth in iniquity because they're children of wrath, because they're spiritually opposed to God, rebelling against Him, will deny even the highest mountain of evidence of all of its manuscripts, of the unity of the Scriptures as a whole that was written by dozens of authors over a handful of continents across millennia. At the end of the day, something more is needed to bring us to the full persuasion assurance that this is in fact the Word of God, and that is that God has to persuade us. You see that there at the end of the paragraph? Yet notwithstanding, in other words not taking anything away from all of these wonderful evidences that were just listed, that are valuable for our own lives, that, that perhaps assure us and comfort us and, and bring us great conviction about the nature of the Scriptures, yet notwithstanding, not taking anything away from any of these evidences, our full persuasion, that's the key word, our full persuasion, what gets us all the way there, what gets us across the goal line, and being fully persuaded and assured of the infallible truth, that is, that it cannot err, and of the divine authority thereof, is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. We see this truth according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You can turn there with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 2.
Paul's talking about. He's proclaiming the gospel. And, well, Paul, if, if the gospel is such good news, this gospel of Christ and him crucified, if it's such good news and it's so true, why do the Gentiles reject it and why do the Jews reject it? Why is it folly to so many people if it's true? Chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, that although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things... God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of the person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, that is the one without the spirit, does not accept the things of the spirit of God because they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things. But he himself is to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That is, through the Spirit, he has spoken to us such that we might know the will of God in Christ. And so the truth about God revealed to the prophets and the apostles and is scripturated to us is a secret and a hidden wisdom from God that can only be revealed. The curtain can only be pulled back if the Holy Spirit, who blows wherever He wishes, pulls back the curtain, pulls back the veil, so to speak, that blinds the eyes of unbelievers so that the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ might shine in our hearts through His Word. You can put a whole mound of evidence in front of me, and I might be really compelled by it, but in the end, my full persuasion, my full assurance that this is the Word of God and like God cannot err is going to be because the Holy Spirit took me there. The Spirit is what's persuaded me. Friends, this is a real comfort in our evangelism, isn't it? That as we aim to speak God's Word to others... And as we aim to do good apologetics, making good arguments, appealing to reason, appealing to evidence, our full confidence and persuasion of anyone coming to a saving knowledge of Christ is not ultimately because we manage to pile up the highest pile of evidence. 
It's because the Holy Spirit of God illumines their hearts, regenerating them, making them alive when they were once dead, such that now they would respond in repentance and faith to truth that was once hidden but is now revealed. That's what the Spirit does. So these are all good things. We want to labor to put all of these compelling evidences in front of ourselves and in front of others. And yet we trust the Holy Spirit to do the impossible. Because this kind of assurance only comes by way of resurrection from the dead. And only the Holy Spirit of God does that. No pile of evidence can do it. Only the Spirit does. And so we are fully persuaded ultimately of the authority of God because we are spiritually persuaded of it. Well, in chapter 6, or rather paragraph 6, it moves now to its sufficiency. And we're going to see a number of things. We're going to see sufficiency defined, first of all, and then we're going to see sufficiency qualified. So, what do we mean by sufficiency? And then what do we, don't, what do we not mean? Or what are some qualifications that need to be made, beginning in Paragraph 6, read along with me. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. And that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church, common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. The Bible is not a thorough textbook of all possible knowledge. If any of you has ever had a pastor who has stood up in the pulpit, waving his Bible high and said, all you need is this then he doesn't understand the sufficiency of Scripture. When we say that the Scripture is sufficient, we are not saying that the Scripture is sufficient for us to turn around and do brain surgery on one another. Please don't. If I need to be saved through a Heimlich maneuver, which isn't called a Heimlich maneuver anymore, I found out this last Sunday, but I don't even remember what it's called. Please do not look in the Scriptures for how to get the big wad of hamburger, out of my throat. There's another place to go for sufficient knowledge on these things. If I break down on the side of the road and I need something fixed in my engine, please don't go to the Bible. Call Todd. (laughs) Todd is sufficient for these things. But what then is the Scriptures sufficient for? Did you notice what it said? The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life. It's not sufficient for all possible knowledge, but it is sufficient for everything that God would have us know about himself for all that he would have us rightly believe concerning himself and the gospel, and of all that he would have us do in response to his revelation, such that we don't need any more revelation. 
It is the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary. If my generation and the generation that went before me, if the grave battle of those generations in the 70s and the 80s was over the inerrancy of Scripture, many have observed today that the that the battle today over Scripture is not so much over inerrancy. That ship has sailed. It is over sufficiency. Is the Bible enough? Or do we need someone else? Do we need another sister in Christ, perhaps, to whom Jesus speaks directly so that through her own writings, Jesus might be calling? Do we need more than the Scriptures? or the Scripture's enough. We live in a day and an age that grows impatient with the Bible and is looking for anything that seems or smells like the Word of God. And there are myriad counterfeits. What the confession is saying is that we don't need anything to know who God is, of what we're to believe, and how we're to respond to His revelation than what He has given us in His Word. We don't need to go anywhere else. For brain surgery, Heimlich maneuvers, car repairs, and many other things, there are other manuals far more sufficient than the Scriptures. But for these things, all we need is the Bible. We don't need more revelation. We don't need supplemental revelation. We might read all kinds of good books, but these good books are just helpful guides that lead us back to the Scriptures. Because all that we need is here. So, that's sufficiently, or sufficiency defined. But then notice two things. It says it is, it is expressed explicitly, that is expressly set down, or implicitly. Now, you've heard me say, as I've been preaching through the covenants, that there are some people who will say, well, that's not expressly said in the Bible. That word isn't there. That phrase isn't there. Now, there are some doctrines and some teachings and some commands that are expressly set down. That is, they're explicitly stated in the Scriptures. And we're to obey those things. That's God's Word. But there are other things that are implicit in the Scriptures. So, for instance, as we've already noted, you could search the Scriptures from the front to the back, and you're not going to find any Bible verse anywhere that is explicitly laying down the doctrine of the Trinity. That from the whole counsel of God and revealing who He is, we are now able, interpreting Scripture with Scripture, to draw out logical and necessary inferences to say this is who God is, such that those necessary inferences from God's Word are every bit God's Word as those explicit statements. To deny that is to fall into old Sicinian error. The Sicinians were those who wanted to interpret the Bible literally, and not just literally, but only explicitly. And so they denied the Trinity, and they denied many other things. It's interesting, as I have conversations with prospective members in our church, those who perhaps are uncomfortable with the idea of church membership because they go, I've read the Bible, and I don't see church membership in the Bible. It's because church membership isn't explicitly stated in the way that we're summarizing it. It is a necessary inference. That when you take all of the hundred plus one another commands... 
and how Christians are to love and encourage and guard one another, and how that loving and encouraging and guarding is to take place under the leadership of those who know them well enough to give account for their souls, you start to draw out logical inferences that ultimately suggest that this kind of love can only be localized under prescribed authority, ordered in a local church, and that's church membership. That's what the confession means then, is that those things which are necessarily contained, though not explicit, are every bit God's Word as those things which are explicit in God's Word. Does that make sense? It's not merely human logic. It's saying those things that are necessary. In other words, when we lay out all of the evidence of the Bible and we draw out these logical conclusions such that there cannot be another possible conclusion like God as Trinity, that necessary inference, that's what we mean by necessary, it cannot be otherwise, is every bit God's Word. That's really key if we're going to do good theology. It's key to having a good confession. It's key to faithful preaching. It's key to faithful discipleship in the life of the church. And we do it all the time. But it's that we want to labor not only to know those things explicitly stated, but those things which are necessarily contained. Well, we see in the last part of the, of the paragraph that there is a need for spiritual illumination and there is a place for Christian prudence and reason. In other words, there's going to be all kinds of things that are neither going to be explicitly stated in Scripture and are not going to be necessary inferences, but we're just going to have to use human reason and Christian prudence. We're free to go right or left because it's neither right nor wrong to decide what is going to be best in our given context for the sake of the good of others and the glory of God. This is often when I speak to young people who are struggling with God's will for their life. I say, what does God want from me? Well, I mean, there's some places in the scriptures where God has said expressly what his will is. First Thessalonians 4, God's will for your life is your sanctification. He wants you to be like Christ. I say, well, what am I supposed to do? Should I do this? Should I marry this person or should I not marry this person? Should I take this job or not take that job? Should I buy that house or that car? Should I not buy that house and that car? To which you go, is there any command or prohibition explicitly stated or necessarily contained in the scriptures that would prevent you or compel you to do it? If the answer is yes, then you need to do it because that's God's word. If the answer is no, then you can move on to the next step, so to speak. Okay, now we're in the realm of wisdom. It's neither a right or a wrong issue. It's a right and a left issue, but that doesn't mean that right or left are equally good or equally prudent or equally wise. How do we determine that? Well, does one or either path ultimately serve the glory of God and the good of your neighbor? Does it help you better love and follow God in the context of the church to help other Christians follow Jesus, to, to better walk in holiness in the grace and the knowledge of Christ? Does it, does it help you that or is it going to prevent you in doing that? Well, if it's going to prevent you in doing that, then don't do it. It would be imprudent. But if it's going to help you, if you could see ways that would help you grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and encourage you to glorify God and, and serve the good of others, then it might be prudent for you to do it. And then at the very end, if it's a prudential thing that's neither commanded nor prohibited in God's word, either explicitly or implicitly, 
then the final question is, do you want to do it? If you want to do it, then do it. If you don't, don't do it. And that's really it. But you understand, this is, this is, this is just one practical implication of this doctrine of something being expressly set down or necessarily inferred and how that relates to Christian prudence and wisdom in all matters of life, okay? Paragraph seven, we move now from sufficiency to perspicuity. We're going to see first a qualification, then a definition, then an implication. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all, yet all things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or another that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. Notice there's a qualification. Not everything in Scripture is easy to understand. You realize this is one of the reasons why God has given you pastors that they might study the Word and to help you know it. That's to say, some parts are just harder to understand than others, isn't it? Your own readings of the Bible bear that out. Even the, even the Apostle Peter says that about Paul. You remember in 2 Peter chapter 3? He says, we count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. And there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Even the apostle Peter is going, Paul, what are you talking about, bro? They're hard to understand. Not because they're not understandable, but because not all things are equally understandable. And yet, here's the definition. Everything that is necessary for you to come to saving faith in Christ through the gospel and to obey him in the, basic, in the most basic ways in your life is clear in Scripture. Such that, notice at the very end, the implication is that the study of the Scriptures isn't an ivory tower exercise. It is something that every Christian, whether they have a seminary degree or not, whether they have a college degree or not, whether they are old or young, whether they're literate or illiterate, can be learned through the use of ordinary means. And those ordinary means are going to be the reading of the scriptures, the preaching of the word, the teaching of the word, and other things. And so the paragraphs are clear. That's the perspicuity of Scripture. And then in 8 through 10, finally, we're going to see the use of the Scriptures. We're going to see its availability in paragraph 8, and then paragraphs 9 and 10, we're going to see its finality. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which is at the time of the writing, was most generally known to the nations, being immediately and inspired by God and by a singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentic, so as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God who might have right unto an interest in the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. So we're considering here the availability of the scriptures. And we see two things. We see, first of all, God's work, and then we see our work. 
God's work is, first of all, the work of inspiration, autographia, in the originals. The autographs are inspired by God, are infallible and without error, but he is also committed to their preservation, not just to their inspiration, such that when those original manuscripts were copied and those copies were copied, and they were all copied in such a way that now the translations that we hold in our hand, according to the very providential preservation of God, we can be confident that our Bibles are, in fact, the very Word of God, accurate to more than 99% accuracy of the original manuscripts, which is a remarkable uh, study. If you want to get into the weeds of that, you can get in textual criticism and how all the manuscripts come together and, and, and so on and so forth. Mary Taylor will guide you in all of those things. But it's to say that we can be confident, not only because of God's inspiration, but because of His preservation, that the copies that we have in our hand are, in fact, God's Word. And so we take those originals of Hebrew and of, and of Greek, and ultimately we have a, a responsibility. Our work, then, is the work of translation and transmission. It is to try to put God's Word in every known language around the world so that all of mankind might be able to read and know and hear of the truth of the gospel in their own language. So one of the things that I love immediately off the bat of this confession is it moves us in a, in a kind of missionary impulse. That to be people who have the scriptures is to be a people who long for and have a responsibility to seeing the scriptures be put in the hands of other people all over the world in their own language. And so, if we were as a church to adopt the confession, one of the things that we need to consider then as a church is, what are the Bible translation organizations that we want to partner with that are doing the best work in terms of getting the Scriptures faithfully translated into languages that currently don't have the Scriptures? That's one of the reasons why we support Radius International as missionaries go down and do hard language work, learning how to go into dead and dying languages or, or languages that for which there's no translation, and be able to do good translation work and get the Scriptures into their languages. One of the reasons why we commit to that is because we understand our obligation to see the Scriptures translated and transmitted or propagated to all people everywhere. But then finally, in paragraphs 9 and 10, we have the finality of Scripture. This is ultimately the two paragraphs that articulate most sufficiently the doctrine of sola scriptura. The infallible rule of the interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. In other words, in paragraph 9, it's saying the Scripture has final authority over the interpretation of Scripture. Final authority over the interpretation of Scripture. We interpret Scripture with Scripture. So how do we do that? Are we concerned with getting to the author's original understanding? Well, yes, we are. We want to understand the text in its context, but we can't limit it there because that human author was inspired by God. And though we have many human authors in the scriptures, we have one ultimate author, and that is God. And as such, we can speak intelligibly about the unity of the scriptures such that we can interpret the scriptures with the scriptures intelligibly not because human authors across the millennia had 
you know, an awe-temporal powwow about their intentions to put together this marvelous book. Now I'm getting super science fiction-y. No, it's because God who resides outside of time has yet come into history through inspired authors to reveal himself and to inscripturate it in the Bible. And so, because God is the one author of the whole Scripture, we interpret Scripture with Scripture. And the more difficult things to interpret are to be interpreted then by the things that are easier to understand. And so, one of the things I want you to keep in mind, even as I aim to preach through covenant theology, is to try to interpret Scripture with Scripture. How do we understand this type? How do we understand this anti-type? How do these things fit together? What are the logical inferences that we're taking from it? We want to interpret Scripture with Scripture. It's called the analogy of faith. And one of the ways that confessions are helpful insofar as they're faithful summaries of Scripture is they help us interpret Scripture with Scripture. However, every confession is ultimately not Scripture. No creed is Scripture. And to hold to a confession and even to submit to it is not ultimately to put it on par with Scripture. In fact, the, the confession itself says otherwise. Paragraph 10, the supreme judge by which all other controversies of religion are to be determined. And all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined. In whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit into which Scripture so delivered our faith is finally resolved. We are all about reading ancient writers. We are all about submitting ourselves to the wisdom of creeds and confessions and the truth therein. We are all about considering those things confessed through the history of the church. We're even all about the right use of human reason to draw out logical inferences from the scriptures, but yet all of those things in and of themselves are not equal to scripture. Sacred tradition, according to the Roman church, is not equal to Scripture. Scripture alone has final authority, and that is sola scriptura. Now, this is an important final qualification. There's some confusion today over what we mean by sola scriptura, by Scripture alone. There are some who would understand sola scriptura to mean only the Bible. No other, ex no, nothing outside of the Bible can function with any kind of authority in the life of a believer or a church. It's the scripture alone, such that we come to the scriptures without any frameworks, without any external helps. It's only the scriptures. That is not sola scriptura. That is not the way that the Protestants have understood sola scriptura historically. That is what we might call nuda scriptura. Scripture only. Scripture onlyism or biblicism is unhelpful because it's going to be skeptical toward tradition. It's going to be skeptical toward uh, external authority. It's going to be skeptical toward creeds. It's going to be skeptical toward confessions and a whole host of other things. Now, what sola scriptura ultimately confesses is that there are subordinate authorities that possess a kind of derivative authority over the life of believers, including human reason, including historical creeds and confessions in the church. And those things, insofar as they don't contradict what is expressly written down or necessarily inferred in Scripture, have, in a derivative sense, the very authority of Scripture and what they express, such that we should follow them and submit to them but yet they submit to the Scriptures. 
Scripture is final in its arbitration of all of these things. So, sola scriptura is not to say no authority but Scripture. There are other reasonable and profitable authorities in the life of a Christian is to say there is no authority over the Scriptures or alongside the Scriptures. The Scriptures are supreme in authority, which is to say that sola scriptura is ultimately scriptura suprema. It is supreme authority, even over these secondary and derivative authorities like a second London Baptist confession of faith.